Section 5 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. Our National Parks by John Muir. Chapter 3 The Yosemite National Park. Of all the mountain ranges I have climbed, I like the Sierra Nevada the best. Though extremely rugged, with its main features on the grandest scale in height and depth, it is nevertheless easy of access and hospitable, and its marvelous beauty, displayed in striking and alluring forms, woos the admiring wanderer on and on, higher and higher, charmed and enchanted. Benevolent, solemn, fateful, pervaded with divine light, every landscape glows like a countenance hollowed in eternal repose, and every one of its living creatures, clad in flesh and leaves, and every crystal of its rocks, whether on the surface shining in the sun or buried miles deep in what we call darkness, is throbbing and pulsing with the heartbeats of God, all the world lies warm in one heart, yet the Sierra seems to get more light than other mountains. The weather is mostly sunshine embellished with magnificent storms, and nearly everything shines from base to summit, the rocks, streams, lakes, glaciers, irised falls, and the forests of silver fir and silver pine. And how bright is the shining after summer showers and dewy nights and after frosty nights in spring and autumn when the morning sunbeams are pouring through the crystals on the bushes and grass and in winter through the snow-laden trees. The average cloudiness for the whole year is perhaps less than ten hundredths. Scarcely a day of all the summer is dark, though there is no lack of magnificent thunder and cumuli. They rise in the warm midday hours, mostly over the middle region, in June and July, like new mountain ranges, higher sierras, mightily augmenting the grandeur of the scenery while giving rain to the forests and gardens and bringing forth their fragrance. The wonderful weather and beauty inspire everybody to be up and doing. Every summer day is a work day to be confidently counted on, the short dashes of rain forming not interruptions but rests. The big blessed storm days of winter, when the whole range stands white, are not a whit less inspiring and kind. Well may the Sierra be called the range of light, not the snowy range, for only in winter is it white, while all the year it is bright. Of this glorious range, the Yosemite National Park is a central section, 36 miles in length and 48 miles in breadth. The famous Yosemite Valley lies in the heart of it, and it includes the headwaters of the Tuolumne and Merced Rivers, two of the most songful streams in the world, innumerable lakes and waterfalls and smooth, silky lawns, the noblest forests, the loftiest granite domes, the deepest ice-sculptured canyons, the brightest crystalline pavements, and snowy mountains soaring into the sky twelve and thirteen thousand feet, arrayed in open ranks and spiry pinnacled groups, 
partially separated by tremendous canyons and amphitheaters gardens on their sunny brows avalanches thundering down their long white slopes cataracts roaring gray and foaming in the crooked rugged gorges and glaciers in their shadowy recesses working in silence slowly completing their sculpture newborn lakes at their feet blue and green free or encumbered with drifting icebergs like miniature arctic oceans shining sparkling calm as stars nowhere will you see the majestic operations of nature more clearly revealed beside the frailest most gentle and peaceful things nearly all the park is a profound solitude yet it is full of charming company full of god's thoughts a place of peace and safety amid the most exalted grandeur and eager enthusiastic action a new song a place of beginnings abounding in first lessons on life mountain building eternal invincible unbreakable order with sermons in stones storms trees flowers and animals brimful of humanity during the last glacial period just past the former features of the range were rubbed off as a chalk sketch from a blackboard and a new beginning was made hence the wonderful clearness and freshness of the rocky pages but to get all this into words is a hopeless task the leanest sketch of each feature would need a whole chapter nor would any amount of space however industriously scribbled be of much avail to defrauded town toilers parks and magazine articles are like pictures of bread to the hungry i can write only hints to incite good wanderers to come to the feast while this glorious park embraces big generous samples of the very best of the sierra treasure it is fortunately at the same time the most accessible portion it lies opposite san francisco at a distance of about one hundred and forty miles railroads connected with all the continent reach into the foothills and three good carriage roads from big oak flat coulterville and raymond run into yosemite valley another called the tioga road runs from crocker's station on the yosemite big oak flat road near the tuolumne big tree grove right across the park to the summit of the range by way of lake tenaya the big tuolumne meadows and mount dana these roads with many trails that radiate from yosemite valley bring most of the park within reach of everybody well or half well the three main natural divisions of the park the lower middle and alpine regions are fairly well defined in altitude topographical features and vegetation the lower with an average elevation of about five thousand feet is the region of the great forests made up of sugar pine the largest and most beautiful of all the pines in the world the silvery yellow pine the next in rank douglas spruce libocedrus the white and red silver firs and the sequoia gigantea or big tree the king of conifers the noblest of a noble race on warm slopes next the foothills there are a few sabine nut pines oaks make beautiful groves in the canyon valleys and poplar 
alder maple laurel and nuttall's flowering dogwood shade the banks of the streams many of the pines are more than two hundred feet high but they are not crowded together the sunbeams streaming through their feathery arches brighten the ground and you walk beneath the radiant ceiling in devout subdued mood as if you were in a grand cathedral with mellow light sifting through colored windows while the flowery pillared aisles open enchanting vistas in every direction scarcely a peak or ridge in the whole region rises bare above the forests though they are thinly planted in some places where the soil is shallow from the cool breezy heights you look abroad over a boundless waving sea of evergreens covering hill and ridge and smooth flowing slope as far as the eye can reach and filling every hollow and down-plunging ravine in glorious triumphant exuberance perhaps the best general view of the pine forests of the park and one of the best in the range is obtained from the top of the merced and tuolumne divide near hazel green on the long smooth finely folded slopes of the main ridge at a height of five to six thousand feet above the sea they reach most perfect development and are marshaled to view in magnificent towering ranks their colossal spires and domes and broad palm-like crowns deep in the kind sky rising above one another a multitude of giants in perfect health and beauty sun-fed mountaineers rejoicing in their strength chanting with the wind in accord with the falling waters the ground is mostly open and inviting to walkers. The fragrant chamabasha is outspread in rich carpets miles in extent, the manzanita in orchard-like groves covered with pink bell-shaped flowers in the spring, grows in openings facing the sun, hazel and buckthorn in the dells, warm brows are purple with mint yellow with sunflowers and violets and tall lilies ring their bells around the borders of meadows and along the ferny mossy banks of the streams never was mountain forest more lavishly furnished hazel green is a good place to quietly camp and study to get acquainted with the trees and birds to drink the reviving water and weather and to watch the changing lights of the big charmed days the rose light of the dawn, creeping higher among the stars, changes to daffodil yellow. Then come the level, enthusiastic sunbeams pouring across the feathery ridges, touching pine after pine, spruce and fir, lebocedrus and lordly sequoia, searching every recess until all are awakened and warmed in the white noon they shine in silvery splendor every needle and cell in bowl and branch thrilling and tingling with ardent life and the whole landscape glows with consciousness like the face of a god the hours go by uncounted the evening flames with purple and gold the breeze that has been blowing from the lowlands dies away and far and near the mighty host of trees baptized in the purple flood stand hushed and thoughtful awaiting the sun's blessing and farewell as impressive a ceremony as if it were never to rise again when the daylight fades the night breeze from the snowy summit begins to blow and the trees 
waving and rustling beneath the stars, breathe free again. It is hard to leave such camps and woods. Nevertheless, to the large majority of travelers, the middle region of the park is still more interesting, for it has the most striking features of all the Sierra scenery, the deepest sections of the famous canyons, of which the Yosemite Valley, Hetch Hetchy Valley, and many smaller ones are wider portions, with level park-like floors and walls of immense height and grandeur of sculpture. This middle region holds also the greater number of the beautiful glacier lakes and glacier meadows, the great granite domes, and the most brilliant and most extensive of the glacier pavements. And though in large part it is severely rocky and bare, it is still rich in trees. The magnificent silver fir, Abies magnifica, which ranks with the giants, forms a continuous belt across the park above the pines at an elevation from seven to nine thousand feet and north and south of the park boundaries to the extremities of the range only slightly interrupted by the main canyons the two-leaved or tamarack pine makes another less regular belt around the upper margin of the region while between these two belts and mingling with them in groves or scattered are the mountain hemlock the most graceful of evergreens the noble mountain pine the jeffrey form of the yellow pine with big cones and long needles and the brown burly sturdy western juniper all these except the juniper which grows on bald rocks have plenty of flowery brush about them and gardens in open spaces here too lies the broad shining heavily sculptured region of primeval granite which best tells the story of the glacial period on the pacific side of the continent no other mountain chain on the globe as far as i know is so rich as this sierra in bold striking well-preserved glacial monuments easily understood by anybody capable of patient observation every feature is more or less glacial and this park portion of the range is the brightest and clearest of all not a peak ridge dome canyon lake basin garden forest or stream but in some way explains the past existence and modes of action of flowing grinding sculpturing soil making scenery making ice for notwithstanding the post-glacial agents air rain frost rivers earthquakes avalanches have been at work upon the greater part of the range for tens of thousands of stormy years engraving their own characters over those of the ice the latter are so heavily emphasized and enduring they still rise in sublime relief clear and legible through every after inscription the streams have traced only shallow wrinkles as yet and avalanche wind rain and melting snow have made blurs and scars but the change effected on the face of the landscape is not greater than is made on the face of a mountaineer by a single year of weathering of all the glacial phenomena presented here the most striking and attractive to travelers are the polished pavements because they are so beautiful and their beauty is of so rare a kind unlike any part of the loose earthy lowlands where people dwell and earn their bread 
They are simply flat or gently undulating areas of solid resisting granite, the unchanged surface over which the ancient glaciers flowed. They are found in the most perfect condition at an elevation of from eight to 9,000 feet above sea level. Some are miles in extent, only slightly blurred or scarred by spots that have at least yielded to the weather, while the best-preserved portions are brilliantly polished and reflect the sunbeams as calm water or glass, shining as if rubbed and burnished every day, notwithstanding they have been exposed to splashing, corroding rains, dew, frost, and melting sloppy snows for thousands of years. The attention of hunters and prospectors, who see so much in their wild journeys, is seldom attracted by moraines, however regular and artificial-looking, or rocks, however boldly sculptured, or canyons, however deep and sheer-walled. But when they come to these pavements, they go down on their knees and rub their hands admiringly on the glistening surface and try hard to account for its mysterious smoothness and brightness. They may have seen the winter avalanches come down the mountains, through the woods, sweeping away the trees and scouring the ground, but they conclude that this cannot be the work of avalanches because the striae showed that the agent, whatever it was, flowed along and around and over the top of high ridges and domes, and also filled the deep canyons. Neither can they see how water could be the agent, for the strange polish is found thousands of feet above the reach of any conceivable flood. Only the winds seem capable of moving over the face of the country in the directions indicated by the lines and grooves. The pavements are particularly fine around Lake Tenaya and have suggested the Indian name Piwiak, the Lake of the Shining Rocks. Indians seldom trouble themselves with geological questions, but a mono-Indian once came to me and asked if I could tell him what made the rocks so smooth at Tenaya. Even dogs and horses on their first journeys into this region study geology to the extent of gazing wonderingly at the strange brightness of the ground and pawing it and smelling it as if afraid of falling or sinking. In the production of this admirable hard finish, the glaciers in many places exerted a pressure of more than a hundred tons to the square foot, planing down granite, slate, and quartz alike, showing their structure and making beautiful mosaics where large feldspar crystals form the greater part of the rock. On such pavements, the sunshine is at times dazzling, as if the surface were of burnished silver. Here also are the brightest of the Sierra landscapes in general. The regions lying at the same elevation to the north and south were perhaps subjected to as long and intense a glaciation, but because the rocks are less resisting, their polished surfaces have mostly given way to the weather leaving here and there only small, imperfect patches on the most enduring portions of canyon walls protected from the action of rain and snow, and on hard bosses kept comparatively dry by boulders. The short, steeply inclined canyons of the east flank of the range are in some places brightly polished, but they are far less magnificent than those of the broad west flank.
one of the best general views of the middle region of the park is to be had from the top of a majestic dome which i long ago named the glacier monument it is situated a few miles to the north of cathedral peak and rises to a height of about fifteen hundred feet above its base and ten thousand above the sea at first sight it seems sternly inaccessible but a good climber will find that it may be scaled on the south side approaching it from this side you pass through a dense bryanthus fringed grove of mountain hemlock catching glimpses now and then of the colossal dome towering to an immense height above the dark evergreens and when at last you have made your way across woods wading through azalea and leadum thickets you step abruptly out of the tree shadows and mossy leafy softness upon a bare porphyry pavement and behold the dome unveiled in all its grandeur fancy a nicely proportioned monument eight or ten feet high hewn from one stone standing in a pleasure ground magnify it to a height of fifteen hundred feet retaining its simplicity of form and fineness and cover its surface with crystals then you may gain the idea of the sublimity and beauty of this ice-burnished dome one of many adorning this wonderful park in making the ascent one finds that the curve of the base rapidly steepens until one is in danger of slipping but feldspar crystals two or three inches long that have been weathered into relief afford slight footholds the summit is in part burnished like the sides and base the striae and scratches indicating that the mighty tuolumne glacier two or three thousand feet deep overwhelmed it while it stood firm like a boulder at the bottom of a river the pressure it withstood must have been enormous had it been less solidly built it would have been ground and crushed into moraine fragments like the general mass of the mountain flank in which at first it lay embedded for it is only a hard residual knob or knot with a concentric structure of superior strength brought into relief by the removal of the less resisting rock about it an illustration in stone of the survival of the strongest and most favorably situated hardly less wonderful when we contemplate the storms it has encountered since it first saw the light is its present unwasted condition the whole quantity of post-glacial wear and tear it has suffered has not diminished its stature a single inch it may be readily shown by measuring from the level of the unchanged polished portions of the surface indeed the average post-glacial denudation of the entire region measured in the same way is found to be less than two inches a mighty contrast to that of the ice for the glacial denudation here has been not less than a mile that is in developing the present landscapes an amount of rock a mile in average thickness has been silently carried away by flowing ice during the last glacial period a few erratic boulders nicely poised on the founded summit of the mountain tell an interesting story they came from a mountain on the crest of the range about twelve miles to the eastward floating like chips on the frozen sea and were stranded here when the top of the monument emerged to the light of day while the companions of these boulders whose positions chanced to be over the slopes where they could not find rest 
were carried further on by the shallowing current. The general view from the summit consists of a sublime assemblage of ice-borne mountains and rocks and long wavering ridges, lakes and streams and meadows, moraines in wide-sweeping belts and beds covered and dotted with forests and groves, hundreds of square miles of them composed in wild harmony. The snowy mountains on the axis of the range, mostly sharp-peaked and crested, rise in a noble array along the sky to the eastward and northward. The gray-pillared Hoffman Spur and the Yosemite Domes, and a countless number of others to the westward, Cathedral Peak with its many spires and companion peaks and domes to the southward, and a smooth, billowy multitude of rocks from fifty feet or less to a thousand feet high, which from their peculiar form seem to be rolling on westward fill most of the middle ground. Immediately beneath you are the big Tuolumne Meadows, with an ample swath of dark pine woods on either side, enlivened by the young river that is seen sparkling and shimmering as it sways from side to side, tracing as best it can its broad glacial channel. The ancient Tuolumne Glacier, lavishly flooded by many a noble affluent from the snow-laden flanks of Mounts Dana, Gibbs, Lyell, McClure, and others nameless as yet, poured its majestic overflowing current four or five miles wide directly against the high outstanding mass of Mount Hoffman, which divided and deflected it right and left, just as a river is divided against the island that stands in the middle of its channel. Two distinct glaciers were thus formed, one of which flowed through the Big Tuolumne Canyon and Hetch Hetchy Valley, while the other swept upward 500 feet in a broad current across the divide between the basins of Tuolumne and Merced into the Tenaya Basin and thus down through the Tenaya Canyon and Yosemite Valley. The map-like distinctness and freshness of this glacial landscape cannot fail to excite the attention of every observer, no matter how little of its scientific significance he may at first recognize. These bold, glossy, westward-leaning rocks in the open middle ground, with their rounded backs and shoulders toward the glacier fountains of the summit mountains, and their split angular fronts looking in the opposite direction, every one of them displaying the form of greatest strength with reference to physical structure and glacial action, show the tremendous force with which through unnumbered centuries the ice flood swept over them, and also the direction of the flow, while the mountains with their sharp summits and abraded sides indicate the height to which the glacier rose, and the moraines, curving and swaying in beautiful lines, mark the boundaries of the main trunk and its tributaries as they existed toward the close of the glacial winter. None of the commercial highways of sea or land, marked with buoys and lamps, fences and guideboards, is so unmistakably indicated as are these channels of the vanished Tuolumne glaciers. The action of flowing ice, whether in the form of river-like glaciers or broad mantling folds, is but little understood as compared with that of other sculpting agents.
Rivers work openly where people dwell, and so do the rain and the sea thundering on all the shores of the world. And the universal ocean of air, though unseen, speaks aloud in a thousand voices and explains its modes of working and its power. But glaciers, back in their cold solitudes, work apart from men, exerting their tremendous energies in silence and darkness, coming in vapor from the sea, flying invisible on the wind, descending in snow, changing to ice, white, spirit-like. They brood, outspread over the predestined landscapes, working on, unwearied, through unmeasured ages, until in the fullness of time the mountains and valleys are brought forth, channels furrowed for the rivers, basins made for meadows and lakes, and soil beds spread for the forests and fields that man and beast may be fed. Then vanishing like clouds, they melt into streams and go singing back home to the sea. To an observer upon this adamantine old monument in the midst of such scenery, getting glimpses of the thoughts of God, the day seems endless, the sun stands still. Much faithless fuss is made over the passage in the Bible telling of the standing still of the sun for Joshua. Here you may learn that the miracle occurs for every devout mountaineer, for everybody doing anything worth doing, seeing anything worth seeing. One day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day, and while yet in the flesh you enjoy immortality. From the monument you will find an easy way down through the woods and along the big Tuolumne meadows to Mount Dana, the summit of which commands a grand telling view of the Alpine region. The scenery all the way is inspiring, and you saunter on without knowing that you are climbing. The spacious, sunny meadows, through the midst of which the bright river glides, extend with but little interruption ten miles to the eastward, dark woods rising on either side to the limit of tree growth, and above the woods a picturesque line of gray peaks and spires dotted with snow banks, while on the axis of the Sierra Mount Dana and his noble compeers repose in massive sublimity, their vast size and simple flowing contours contrasting in the most striking manner with the clustering spires and thin pinnacled crests crisply outlined on the horizon to the north and south of them tracing the silky lawns gradually ascending gazing at the sublime scenery more and more openly unfolded noting the avalanche gaps in the upper forests lingering over beds of blue gentians and purple-flowered bryanthus and cassiop the dwarf willows an inch high in close-felted gray carpets, brightened here and there with calmia and soft-creeping mats of vaccinium sprinkled with pink bells that seem to have been showered down from the sky like hail. Thus beguiled and enchanted, you reach the base of the mountain wholly unconscious of the miles you have walked, and so on to the summit. For all the way up the long red slate slopes, that in the distance seemed barren, you find little garden beds and tufts of dwarf flocks, invisia, and blue arctic daisies that go straight to your heart, blessed fellow mountaineers kept safe and warm by a thousand miracles. 
You are now more than 13,000 feet above the sea, and to the north and south you behold a sublime wilderness of mountains in glorious array, their snowy summits towering together in crowded, bewildering abundance, shoulder to shoulder, peak beyond peak. To the east lies the great basin, barren-looking and silent, apparently a land of pure desolation, rich only in beautiful light. Mono Lake, fourteen miles long, is outspread below you at a depth of nearly seven thousand feet, its shores of volcanic ashes and sand, treeless and sunburned, a group of volcanic cones with well-formed, unwasted craters rises to the south of the lake, while up from its eastern shore innumerable mountains with soft-flowing outlines extend range beyond range, gray and pale purple and blue, the farthest gradually fading on the flowing horizon. Westward you look down and over the countless moraines, glacier meadows, and grand sea of domes and rock waves of the upper Tuolumne Basin, the cathedral in Hoffman Mountains, with their wavering lines and zones of forest, the wonderful region to the north of the Tuolumne Canyon, and across the dark belt of silver firs to the pale mountains of the coast. In the icy fountains of Mount Lyell and Ritter groups of peaks, to the south of Dana, three of the most important of the Sierra rivers, the Tuolumne, Merced, and San Joaquin, take their rise, their highest tributaries being within a few miles of one another as they rush forth on their adventurous courses from beneath snowbanks and glaciers. Of the small shrinking glaciers of the Sierra, remnants of the majestic system that sculptured the range, I have seen sixty-five. About twenty-five of them are in the park, and eight are in sight from Mount Dana. The glacier lakes are sprinkled over all the alpine and subalpine regions, gleaming like eyes beneath heavy rock brows, tree-fringed or bare, embosomed in the woods, or lying in open basins with green and purple meadows around them. But the greater number are in the cool, shadowy hollows of the summit mountains not far from the glaciers, the highest lying at an elevation of from eleven to nearly twelve thousand feet above the sea. The whole number in the Sierra, not counting the smallest, can hardly be less than 1,500, of which about 250 are in the park. From one standpoint on Red Mountain, I counted 42, most of them within a radius of 10 miles. The glacier meadows, which are spread over the filled-up basins of vanished lakes and form one of the most charming features of the scenery, are still more numerous than the lakes. An observer stationed here in the glacial period would have overlooked a wrinkled mantle of ice as continuous as that which now covers the continent of Greenland, and of all the vast landscape now shining in the sun, he would have seen only the tops of the summit peaks rising darkly like storm-beaten islands, lifeless and hopeless, above rock-encumbered ice waves. If among the agents that nature has employed in making these mountains there be one that above all other deserves the name of destroyer, it is the glacier. But we quickly learn that destruction is creation. During the dreary centuries through which the Sierra lay in darkness, crushed beneath the ice folds of the glacial winter, 
there was a steady invincible advance toward the warm life and beauty of to-day and it is just where the glaciers crushed most destructively that the greatest amount of beauty is made manifest but as these landscapes have succeeded the pre-glacial landscapes so they in turn are giving place to others already planned and foreseen the granite domes and pavements apparently imperishable we take as symbols of permanence while these crumbling peaks down whose frosty gullies avalanches are ever falling are symbols of change and decay yet all alike fast or slow are surely vanishing away nature is ever at work building and pulling down creating and destroying keeping everything whirling and flowing allowing no rest but in rhythmical motion chasing everything in endless song out of one beautiful form into another End of section five